Okay, so welcome to PH Drinking. Uh, this is your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today, I have someone I know from undergraduate who right now is building a solid body electric guitar, um, basically from scratch as far as I'm concerned. He is a second year <laughs> uh, geology uh, graduate student at the University of Colorado, so welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me. Um, so what are you drinking right now? Oh, the the beer of Colorado. I'm drinking a Coors Light. Oh, no. Okay, that's the end of the interview. Then we're done. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we had in the fridge. But you're like, you're in the mecca of, of craft beer. Like, there are so many options. What well, are you doing? I'll tell, I'll tell you, I never drank so much shitty beer like PBR and Coors and whatnot as I have since I moved here. Somehow the fact that I'm surrounded by craft beer just makes me not as interested in it anymore. You know? That makes Most of the sad. craft beer I drink is the beer that I make myself, in all honesty. When I go to the store, I just buy, like, PBR. <laughs> I'm sad now. I'm very sad. <laughs> I get so excited when I can go back to Texas. and like, I'm like, and then I'm going to have some, like, I'm going to go to Chester King, and then I'm going to go do, like, Austin Texas Beer Texas has great and- beer. I, know, I, I will say, I, I think I like Texas beer better than Colorado beer. Oh, shit. We're going to get a lot of... I feel like the flack is going to fly for that. Well, I, mean. I mean, being from Texas, I'm probably more than a little bit biased, but I yearn, yeah. I yearn for the Austin beer scene sometimes. <laughs> so you moved up to Colorado, and you're in your second year. So yep. what, like, how, how did you decide on Colorado, first of all? Um, well, when I was applying to grad school, I applied to like a few different places, but Colorado was always kind of my number one, just because I wanted to go up and be in the mountains. Um, I wanted to ski, I wanted to, you know, do mountain biking, all this stuff. And so basically, it's just been an excuse for me to come out here and do all these outdoor things that I've always wanted to do. And then, you know, I get to do science on the side, which is pretty dope as well. Well, so is there unique geology program or like access to like geological research in Colorado? Um, yeah. And in a lot of ways. So the university of Colorado where I'm studying is one of the top geology programs. And my advisor, Becky flowers is like one of the, our, our lab is one of the top labs for the the type of research that we do, which is called uh, uranium thorium helium thermochronology. So we can, we can U- get into uranium. Thorium chronology. Uranium, thorium, helium. Helium. Okay, so three elements: uranium, right. thorium, which is duh, found by the Nordics, and then helium, which everybody knows. Okay, you have to explain that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I've I've tried to think of things that <laughs> I would need to explain. This is one of the big ones, and so to before we move on to that, I mean, uh, thermochronology was kind of what I knew I wanted to get into, and so I applied to Colorado. And Arizona were the two big places that have it. And then coming from UT is actually really big there too, but I wanted to leave UT. Um, So uranium, thorium, uh, helium, thermochronology basically uses the uranium radioactive decay series to date thermal events in rocks. And so when uranium undergoes uh, radioactive decay, it releases an alpha particle or a helium atom, right? Two protons, two neutrons. And so within individual crystals that have uranium in them, they will accumulate helium over a period of time, right? However long, once a crystal forms, it has no helium in it, 
And then as time marches on, it accumulates more and more helium based on the half-life of uranium. And so the reason we look at helium is because it's sensitive to being heated up. So if you heat up uh, whatever mineral you're looking at, typically it's going to be apatite or zircon. Um, it will be what or zircon? Apatite. Apatite, which, which is calcium phosphate. And apatite is what your teeth are made of. Okay, not appetite like I'm hungry. Got it. <laughs> yeah. A-P-A-T-I-T-E. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's the term it I'm sounds like, yeah, it's been so long. I've just been thinking about appetite as a mineral for so long. I've forgotten <laughs> it was like a a homophone or whatever. What What's the word for that? Like the same? It, yeah, I think it is a homophone. I think you're right. Anyway, yeah. So appetite is actually the mineral that I, I work with a lot. Um, so when, when you heat up, say, appetite or zircon above a certain temperature, the helium will start to diffuse out, but it doesn't all diffuse out immediately. And so you can use uh, thermal modeling software that we have called Hefty, and over a, a range of different appetite or zircon grains, you can create basically a time temperature history. So for an individual crystal, or for an individual rock, rather, you can actually reconstruct what it did, you know, over millions and millions of years. You can figure out at what time was it heated up to a certain temperature and, you know, what, what basically its thermal history was. And this allows, this allows us to answer like a lot of cool questions about tectonics and, and different things. So it's, it's a technique that is still fairly new. Um, a lot of people have been, you know, it actually, interestingly, was the very first radiometric dating technique but they didn't know enough about the helium diffusion to actually get it to work. So everyone just kind of gave up on it and they moved to uranium lead. But it's, so uh, this, yeah. I, I'm just trying to think it's, it's really like carbon dating when we look at fossils, but, but on a bigger time scale. Yeah, exactly. So the, yeah, the, the radioactive dating technique that most people know is carbon dating, which is the, kind of the same concept, right? You have a radioactive element and carbon dating is carbon-14 and you measure how much of your daughter product, which would be carbon-12, I think, or is it carbon-13? I don't remember. Basically, carbon's 12. is it carbon-12? But then why would it, it's either going to go, it's going to go undergo, uh, it's going to lose a beta part or oh, crap. I don't know. I don't use, I don't use carbon-14 dating. Basically, carbon, four, carbon 14 is your radioactive isotope, right? And you know it's half-life. And so you basically figure out how much carbon 14 is left in your sample and how much of the daughter product, whichever carbon isotope it is, is left. Or maybe it's nitrogen. Carbon is number six on the on the periodic table of elements. I just had to Google it. Yeah. I used to six know these protons. things. Six yeah. protons. And so carbon 12 has six protons, six neutrons. But anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, the idea is that you have a certain amount of radioactive material that you have at a, at a time, say time zero, right? You have a certain amount in there. And so from time zero, you will create, you will lose that radioactive material and you will gain what's called a daughter product. And so based on how much of your parent, that original radioactive material transforms into daughter product, you know how long ago that particular sample was formed. Okay, so, so like the idea of daughter cells like splitting off, it, but in this case the parent is is transforming and changing. And so you can look at how much is left yeah, over of this. Yeah, exactly. 
of their progeny, basically. Yeah, you can think of it that way. Yeah, basically at a, at a very predictable rate, you have one element becoming another. And yeah. so based on how many of the two elements that you have in your sample, you can figure out how long ago it formed. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Man, this is not the kind of thing I ever think about in my research. <laughs> I just take it, I take it for granted that, number one, people know what isotopes are. And Wait, no, number two. Is that a pun? You take it for granted? For granted. Ah, uh, I want it to be a pun. Yeah, I was stuck out there. <laughs> I've, had, I've had my fill of geology puns. But yeah, I Never. mean, let, let me know at, at what level. I'm happy to explain any any of this stuff. A lot of it is just I've been thinking about this for so long. I'll launch into a discussion on a, a level that's maybe not everyone could understand. Well, I think everybody kind of has an idea of what carbon dating is. And yeah. I mean, maybe not what the process is, but they kind of know what it's used for. And so you're, but you're looking at a bigger time scale and you're interested in plate tectonics. Much but larger time not, scale, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there are not, is there a plate line through Colorado? Um, no. So Colorado is in basically the middle of North American plate. Yeah. And so we got our plate boundary to the west, which is the uh, Pacific plate. And right, that's, that's the ring of that's part of the ring of fire. Part right? of the ring of fire, exactly. And so that's where you have the San Andreas Fault. And up further north, where you get the Cascades, you actually get a little tiny microplate, which is called the Juan de Fuca plate, which you know makes <laughs> the Cascades and, and all those volcanoes and like Crater Lake and stuff like that. And then to our east, you have the spreading center in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So I don't know if you knew this, but the Atlantic Ocean is continually getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. It's getting wider by about, uh, what is it, like four centimeters per year, something like that. <laughs> it's not... I mean, that's kind of big per year. Like, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a measurable rate. And you can actually look up videos online of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which basically is this giant crack. And, you know, magma bubbles up and you get what are called pillow basalts, like all these different lavas and stuff coming up. And so, yeah, I mean, if you look at a map of the world and you kind of, this is actually sort of how the whole idea of plate tectonics was first, you know, established or, or people first figured this out is that South America and Africa, Africa kind of look like they fit together, like a puzzle piece, right? Yeah. And so they actually yeah. did, you know, back in the day. You know, like 180 million years ago, or however. Long right, that was so. uh, Pangaea, which is exactly. like Pangea. all one continent. Although things have been like smushed and stretched now, so not everything fits perfectly. Anymore, yeah, I mean, but... there, there are other processes, but like, I mean, it fits pretty well, especially compared to like other plate boundaries where you have a lot more action going on. Like the the Mid Atlantic Ridge is actually fairly consistent, and so I think that was actually part of why that's where basically the whole idea of continental drift and plate tectonics started, is just because. It's like very obvious right there. <laughs> but, yeah. So, okay, this is off topic, but then how did the Rocky Mountains form if it wasn't plate tectonics? Do you know? Great if not, question. Fine. So it was plate tectonics. And the actual reason that the Rocky Mountains are at 14,000 feet today is still a subject of debate. But the event that created all the, the deformation and stuff that, that we see in the Rocky Mountains is what's called the Laramide orogeny. And so that basically happened. You have, do you know what a subduction zone is? Subduction is one thing going underneath another. It's like, um, it's like yeah. at the end of a walking sidewalk where it looks like it's just getting pushed under. Yeah, right? exactly. So subduction zone is where you have 
ocean floor basically sinking down underneath the continent, right? Yeah. So you, you you can, and this is happening right now. The Pacific Ocean floor is sinking down underneath North America, and so um, about eighty million years ago, that was happening, but at a really shallow angle, right? So the the ocean floor is coming in really really shallow, and it basically sort of yeah about about a thousand kilometers in from the from the shoreline pushed up the Rocky Mountains. That's what geologists like okay. to call flat slab subduction. Yeah, so the Rocky Mountains are kind of like a weird like geologists argue about them constantly. Like it's it's, so it's a lot of it's a very contentious issue. It's like anything that's iconic, like the Grand Canyon gets argued about a lot too. And my advisor actually did a lot of work in the Grand Canyon and She's moved on since then. I think that was her postdoc or something. But, you know, she everybody knows her from her, her work in the Grand Canyon. About, like, I mean, I thought that we just knew it was a river over millions of years. Right. Dollars. But the question is, when did it, when did the Grand Canyon actually become the Grand Canyon, right? Was it 5 million years ago or was it like 50 million years ago? And so oh. part of what Becky did was use the technique that I was describing earlier thermochronology to try and figure out, you know, what the incision rate of the Grand Canyon was. And so th this is actually very relevant to, <laughs> to <fire laughs> So, you know, as you go down deeper in the earth, things get hotter, right? Right. There's, there's what's called Going the, towards the molten core. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's what's called the geotherm. Basically you get radioactive minerals in the crust, in the earth's crust that decay and produce heat. And then you also get heat coming up from the mantle, right, and the core. And so as you go deeper into the earth, things get hotter. And the deeper down you go, you can push minerals, like minerals that I'm interested in, like appetite, push them down by burying them, burying them, burying them with sediment, and basically heat them up. And so you can date the time at which they were at a certain depth. Hmm. Oh my God. That's crazy. So then you're looking at these minerals and how, well then how does that relate to the Grand Canyon? How would you measure that within the Grand Canyon? Do you just look at the like deepest layers of the Canyon and try to figure out how much they are releasing of, um, well, how much helium they have in them? In yeah, the more, more or less. Yeah. So you would, and I'm not super familiar with, with Becky's Grand Canyon paper. I've read it like mm -hmm. one time, <laughs> it was like a while ago, <laughs> but my understanding is what she did was basically you sample, yeah, you would want to sample the deeper levels of the Grand Canyon, but I think they sampled up, you know, the whole way and you take a big chunk of rock, you process it, you get out your appetites and then you take all the helium out of them and, you know, do your thermal modeling and they'll give you a date at which helium was being retained, right? A date at which that appetite was cooler than the temperature at which helium would just diffuse out of it. And so right. that would be the date at which you would have removed whatever amount of overlying sediment that would have caused it to be too hot to retain any helium. So mm -hmm. basically the date at which the Grand Canyon was the Grand Canyon. That's so crazy. In, in a nutshell. There, there are more yeah. nuances, but that's the basic. That's the basic idea, and that is pretty. Right, accurate. any technique is is biased by some assumptions yeah, yeah. you have to make. Yeah, exactly. So, do you do a lot of like um, 
computer modeling? Because I mean, yeah, you can measure the actual like helium output, but you're also having to to make a lot of estimates of of what kind of conditions you expect for the different amounts of helium, right? Yeah. So how much programming do you have to do? <laughs> well, fortunately, the helium community is pretty well established in the modeling aspect. Um, a guy actually at UT who I knew, Rich Ketchum, developed this awesome program called Hepti. And if you have a range of helium dates, you can basically, with you know, you put in other constraints and stuff that you have based on ge geologic knowledge you have about your field area and other stuff like this. But you can basically put all this stuff in and treat it almost as a black box. You press a button and it'll spit out, you know, whatever time temperature histories are allowable based on what you gave it. So it's, it's what's called a Monte Carlo simulator. It'll just take the space that you give it, the time temperature space, and just start trying stuff. It'll just start trying different paths. And it'll keep doing it until it finds one that it likes. And then it'll start over and keep doing it, keep doing it. And then you do it like 50,000 times. But as far so it's as... it's like a guess and check ad Yeah, infinitum. exactly. It's a guess and check. And there, there are other ways to do it, but the Monte Carlo is, is the way that most people have settled on by this at this point. So that, that program itself, you know, I know how to use it. I kind of know what goes into it. I don't tweak it at all. That's something that I may want to do in the future. And I've been thinking about, you know, ways to maybe try and start doing that. But to, to a first order, it's pretty well, pretty well established. So I just know how to use the program. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always a good first step. There's, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. there's only a script that I use. It's like, I know it was written in MATLAB and I know it sets it up so that you can score, you know, sleepy EG data. But beyond that, I'm like, I don't fucking know. Think, I'm not playing no. with parameters. <laughs> like, mm -mm. not doing it. For, for a lot of things, you know, it's good enough. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to ask a, a, I mean, I think that in any field, you have people who really focus hard on methodology and to make sure that you're using the most consistent and sometimes the most conservative models. And then there are also mm -hmm. people who are like, no, I'm just going to explore this new topic that no one has done and yeah. just use your tools. Exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah, we're well, all about the conservative models. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we try to be as conservative as possible with our estimates. Right, because then we're pretty sure they're maybe almost certainly yeah. real. Well, then it's a lot harder for people to call you out on your bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> really... Wait, so do you, when you report stuff in a paper, do you do you use p-values? Do you know what a p-value is? Remind me. A p-value, yeah, it's a statistical thing. Basically, it's how likely this result was a false positive. So in uh, psychology, the standard use is a p-value of 0.05, means that in, you know, less right, than, right, right, right. It, it basically you have to be less than five times and a hundred times that you ran the same study, you get a false positive. So we're trying to make sure we're not, you know, accidentally calling things that are false true. Right. I mean, that is sort of relevant. I mean, our, the, the program that I use, the statistical significance is built into it. That's how it selects mm. the pass. And so it'll, it'll be within a certain amount. I don't remember off the top of my head, you know, what it actually is, but It'll have good good paths that are within a certain you know likelihood of being true, and then it'll have like great paths. And so the good ones are green, and the gray ones are purple. And so you know the purple <laughs> ones—that's really the the good stuff. But I mean, it just it just looks like this big swath when you when you look at it. 
I yeah. wish I wish we could show like a, a photo. It it would help, you know, for at least the casual person to see exactly what Well I can about. definitely if you have something online, I in the description I'll definitely link any photos or anything because yeah, some research is very visual and it helps to be able to have an idea of what what that kind of thing looks like, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's just something that I've been working with a lot recently and it just like Whenever I talk to people about it, I'm always like, I could keep talking about this or I could just show you this photo right here. Here's a, here's a graph. As you can look see. At, look at the graph. Yeah, and if it's got lots of pretty colors, you're like, look, it's like art, it's but purple science. purple and green. It has all these like squiggly lines on it. It's pretty, pretty cool. That's like looking at DTI images that like people call them brain bows because they just like color different pathways in the mm -hmm. brain. It just looks like, basically the Muse cover, the, maybe the last album, I don't know, I haven't kept up. But the one where it's like a brain that's like neon colors, mm -hmm. that's like a DTI image essentially. And so people are like, just look at my pretty data. <laughs> yeah. But you didn't you didn't start interested in plate tectonics when I knew you at UT. You were doing other stuff. You were doing something with limestone? Yeah. That was that was my first idea when I decided I wanted to become a geologist. I thought I was gonna be studying limestones or carbonates, as we call them in geology. But, right. Uh, in that case, calcium carbonate. Exactly, calcium carbonate. But you can have other. You can have like magnesium carbonate. So carbonate is the catch-all, but usually calcium carbonate, which is yeah. Well, did you choose that because there's just so much calcium carbonate in Texas? I mean, exactly. all of the caves yeah. in Texas are limestone caves. Yeah. Like you got it. yeah. It's like almost like a Texas pride thing. Like you would, especially <laughs> driving around, you know, Austin and the hill country, you see all these beautiful road cuts of all these limestone layers and you're just like, wow, this looks so cool. Like I could see just like learning about all this stuff. And so I kind of started to get into it, but then I started going to uh, the seminar that met every week where they would talk about like hard rock geology, basically like plate tectonics, metamorphic rocks, igneous rocks, limestone is a sedimentary rock. And so, you know, I kind of like started moving a little more in that direction because it was really interesting to me, at least the big, kind of the big picture questions. And that's sort of what really I want to go after is like, you know, not what was not like what is any individual basin doing on this time scale? People are very interested in that, like Chevron, Exxon, like all those guys, super interested in that. You can go make a lot of money just by focusing on stuff like that. But I was always more interested in like, you know, okay, what did North America do over like a hundred million years, you know, like the, the super big scale tectonics kind of stuff. Yeah. And in that case, you're not going to get a lot out of sediment or yeah. Sedimentary rock. Well, you can just, you can, but you got to like compile it from a bunch of different areas. You know, mm. looking at one particular section is not going to really make or break your, your whole theory. Tectonics is kind of an odd field in that it's not like, there's not any one way to do it. There's like, a whole bunch of different approaches you can take. And so the way that I've kind of entered into it is through thermochronology. But you could easily be a tectonicist and look at, you know, paleomagnetism <laughs> or stratigraphic sections and basins and stuff like that. You know, Wait, that was a real term? A tech, say it again. Tech what? something? A, a technology, not technology. Oh, tectonicist? Fuck. Tectonicist is a real term. You could like put on your CV and be like, I'm a tectonicist. Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is so outside of my wheelhouse. I just love it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I would describe myself most broadly as a tectonicist. 
Okay. Yeah, so ther- are there... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm a thermochronologist in that that's like the method that I've sort of chosen to become intimately familiar with. And it's kind of the way that I approach tectonic problems. But for me, and this is not true for everyone in the thermochronology field, but for me, it's really more about the larger question than the technique itself. But a lot mm-hmm. of people in my lab are really looking at ways to improve the technique and different minerals we can look at that potentially allow us to answer other questions and like all kinds of other stuff. So, I mean, there's, there's lots of different avenues to go down. The, the way that I kind of envision myself is like looking at big, big scale, you know, what, what are large parts of the earth doing over long periods of time? So are there like conferences specifically for people that study plate tectonics? You know, there, I'm sure that there are, I mean, at any geologic conference, you will probably find some people who are, I mean, everyone studies plate tectonics in a way, right? Plate tectonics is like, <laughs> plate tectonics is to geology what evolution is to biology, right? It's, it's our overarching theory. And so yeah. every geologic study generally in one way or another is related to plate tectonics. But a tectonicist is someone who is actually interested solely in kind of the the motion of these different plates through time and kind of trying to what what always really fascinated me are like paleogeographic reconstructions if you look up ron blakey is the guy and if you look up his website he's got a bunch of cool stuff like you can look basically at a google earth image of what the earth looked like you know 100 million years ago and it's just like they're really well done and they look super cool and you're just like man that's it 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 tickles my imagination at least. And so that, yeah, I mean that it's such a crazy large scale. Yeah. It is a very big question to address. Yeah. And, and I don't know. That, that's just what always like, you know, gets me jazzed up. Everyone in geology has got their own kind of thing. Like some people are really interested in like minerals and mineralogy and like how minerals form and stuff. But you know, I, I would drive myself crazy looking at the same tiny freaking thing for, years and years on end that's what i did at ut my undergrad thesis was looking at these calcite veins and i was just looking at these same thin sections the basically slides that you put under the microscope i just look at them day in and day out and i was like i gotta get out of this i can't do this anymore so i was like so you went from the very tiny I went scale from to basically small scale to like biggest scale <laughs> this isn't working for me i'll try but the opposite end do the polar opposite of what i'm doing God, that's so crazy. So when you are in a, a geology program, like, do you all have to take common classes? Does that mean that, like, you're working with other people who are doing kind of like mineralogy or? Depends. I mean, mineralogy is somewhat tangentially related to what I do because I study, uh, I'm interested in processes that a mineralogist is also going to be interested in, right? Like metamorphism mm-hmm. rocks smashing together and becoming different rocks or volcanism which you know, is like basically creating volcanoes is kind of self-explanatory. And so these things are indicative of plate tectonics happening, right? Plate tectonics is what causes rocks to change and magma to erupt and all these things. And so people are interested sort of in them for their own sake, but also for what they tell us about how, uh, how basically the plates have been behaving for millions of years. Yeah, so so you do have enough common ground that you can take classes that are yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. Similar. I mean, 
And the, the classes that I'm taking, especially the classes I'm taking right now, are like usually only very loosely related to my research. Like maybe they will become relevant later on. But usually if I want to know something about, you know, my field or what, what I, the question that I'm trying to answer, I got to look it up myself. I mean, it's not anything that I'm going to take a class on and be like, oh, that's the answer. I mean, otherwise, why would I be getting a PhD in it? Like, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if exactly. someone had it figured out, I wouldn't be wasting my time with it. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Fuck, yeah. I took a class on the biology of sleep, and I studied sleep. And afterwards, I was like, I have a better-ish understanding. None of my questions were answered, but I guess that's good. Well, yeah. If, I want this to be a career. If, if your research question is answered in your class, that's like the worst possible thing. That <laughs> It was you're published like, well, in the 70s. Was like, well, you're fucked. Was a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, when you're in grad, so you're going to ha- end up doing a, a master's in your program and then a PhD uh, dissertation, right? No. So, I'm just getting a PhD. I won't have a master's. Okay. You don't even have like a step, like in psychology, generally speaking, there's like a. Your second year, you do a master's project, and like no one drops out, or if you dropped out, you would have a master's. But like people continue. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I would have a master, I would get a master's, is if I decided I didn't want to get a PhD, or I mm. take my comprehensive exam, and they're like, "You're not smart enough to get a PhD. You should get a master's and leave." <laughs> I don't think that will happen. But yeah, um, that. The end goal is that I'll just have a bachelor's degree and then a PhD, and I won't, I won't have a master's. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. I think it just in psychology they ought, like you're supposed to finish an early program experiment essentially because they want to make sure that you are on like a track that makes sense mm-hmm. and that you're getting results. But yeah, I don't know how many people actually like go through the paperwork to get a master's. I think they just like yeah. I mean, we, we have that too. I mean, that's that's what the comprehensive exam is. Basically, you write a proposal or you write up like the stuff that you've already done and like a proposal for the rest of your PhD and it gets evaluated and they're like, this is good work or this is terrible. You should leave. But <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I don't think often they say you should leave. I think it's often like you should rewrite this. And then if you fuck up again, they're like, okay, so we just don't think it's working out. <laughs> right. Like, uh, I don't know. But I mean, my sense is that like, as long as I'm not an idiot, which I don't think I am, <laughs> and I keep wanting to get a PhD, I will get a PhD. I don't yeah, know I don't think getting a PhD is so much hard as it is. Like, yeah, I'm gonna get pay. minimum wage for five years and like yeah. work more than forty hours a week and be really excited about it all the time. Yeah, that's just the life, you know. The life I know. I kind of love it. Yeah, you kind of have to. I mean. It would be going from doing this to like having a nine to five job just seems like unthinkable to me. Like mm-hmm. I make my own schedule. I do stuff that I'm interested in solely because I'm interested in it. And you know, anything else at this point would just seem terrible. Yeah. Yeah. The, the amazing amount of flexibility and just like, I took this class because I thought it sounded cool yeah, and it exactly. might like help my own personal interests and, yeah, I meet with people because I like their research and I want to hear about it. I just love that aspect of it. Although the day-to-day is not quite as awesome. Oh, it, it, can be, it can be quite a grind. <laughs> That's definitely true. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts while you're in lab, like doing mindless yeah, work? Yeah, usually if I'm 
I'm doing what's called pigging, just looking through the microscope with a pair of tweezers and a petri dish trying to pick out the minerals I want, which can take a while. Oh, yeah, that's a real thing? You don't have undergrad research assistants for that? I do. <laughs> I actually just hired one. But he's doing all the rock crushing. He's down in the basement smashing these things up with, like, uh, rock crushing machines. So I don't have to do that anymore, <laughs> which is awesome. But the final <laughs> stages are still left to me because he doesn't know how to do it yet. I don't know if I would, yeah. you know, I don't know if I would trust him with doing that anyway. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. He's, he's very new. He was my field yeah. assistant this summer. So wait, do you do field work in the summer? Mm-hmm. So you leave Colorado or? Yeah, yeah so we actually haven't talked about my actual project at all. <laughs> yeah, okay. Tell me your project. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it to you quick. <laughs> It's fine. I mean, I, I figured it would be kind of like there would be so much background just because geology is already not a thing people think about a lot. So yeah. the whole field, like even why we study geology is not obvious to most people. But anyway, so my project, my field area, start with that, is basically all of North America. And so my field season this summer, I was up in Manitoba in Canada, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin, basically looking for granites like rocks that aren't your sedimentary rock and i'm looking for these rocks because the minerals in these rocks are going to be able to tell me about a really long time period because like in canada the the base we call it the basement basically the the granitic or metamorphic rocks that all the sedimentary rocks are deposited on uh it's called the basement so in canada it's like two and a half billion years old and Getting, getting those rocks allows me to potentially see back that far in time. You know, it'll probably be not quite as far as that, but it'll be, it'll be pretty long. And so... I mean, that's, that's a decent amount of time, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's over half the age of the Earth, so it's pretty, it's pretty long time. But yeah, so I basically went around and collected all these basement rocks, and now I'm processing them and trying to get appetites out of them. That's awesome that you get to go do field work all summer and just like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go collect some granite and it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was dumb, man. A lot of people get to go do field work awesome places like New Zealand or Hawaii or the Himalayas. What? I know. I actually you picked the wrong area. I did pick the wrong area. The project itself is really cool. But yeah, the, the field work itself was not necessarily awe-inspiring. Yeah, but well, the benefit I mean, is, if you go camping in the midtime. Yeah, the benefit is not a lot of people work there, so it's not like overcrowded. Like, man, you gotta imagine like how many geologists are working in Hawaii. Like, holy mm-hmm. crap, it's gotta be so many. Like, finding something new to do in Hawaii is probably pretty tough. But if you do have a sweet gig there, I mean, that's awesome. Or like the Caribbean or something like that. Basically, any cool place in the world you can do geology. So all the awesome places are like very well studied. <laughs> Yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> like the sexy places, basically. Right, yeah. <laughs> but that means that you're not in a crowded field, so you have a a better chance of making like a big impact. Exactly, and and for what for what the the question that I'm looking at is actually really well. Uh, the the area that I'm looking at is really good for answering this question, which is obviously why I'm there. But so the the idea. So we talked about thermochronology, basically creating a temperature history for a particular rock. And so my PhD is going to be 
compiling a bunch of these rocks throughout all of North America and seeing, you know, what the temperature history, the low temperature history was for all of these places because it hasn't been done yet. And Really? Yeah. I mean, like like I said, uranium thorium helium is still a, a fairly new technique. So there are a lot of places you can go where no one has really done any helium dating at all. And okay. the, the particular question that I'm looking to answer, which may or may not work, as with most scientific projects, <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is whether or not... So the, using, using uranium thorium helium allows us to basically figure out how much sedimentary rock was deposited over a certain area at a particular time, right? And if it's not there today, it doesn't mean it was never there. It just means a certain time between when it was deposited and now, it just all got eroded away. And so I'm trying to reconstruct basically how much sediment was over these areas and when was it there. And then using that to figure out if the, the sedimentation and erosion patterns fit with what we would expect from mantle convection models. So the mantle, as you may or may not know, <laughs> convex. <laughs> there are convection cells within the mantle. And people have long, long known that these can have an effect on topography. So if you have, like you can think of it, if you have a downwelling underneath a particular area, it'll pull that particular piece down. If you have an upwelling, it'll push it up. But what's not really well known is how much, like how much it affects the topography and kind of what areas it actually matters. So this is almost separate from plate tectonics and the fact that you, it's, it's a different process that's causing elevation or you know, burial. And so, so this is like, these are, this is like within a plate exactly. is, is the within mantle the pushing. Plate. It's like if the plate was a piece of aluminum foil, is it pushing it up and, and making a little mountain or pushing it, you know, pulling it down? Yeah, exactly. And okay. let me be very clear here. This is generally not how mountains are made. And you actually couldn't really make mountains this way because the amount that you could actually push up or pull down is very small. And even at the most generous estimates, it's maybe like one or two kilometers where like a mountain is like 10 times that. Yeah. Right. So we're not talking about, you know, the formation of the Rockies here. We're talking about these very small amplitude changes in uplift or subsidence, but they are real. And so part of the question is like, how, how much of an effect do they actually have? So I'm actually working with a convection modeler in the physics department who is working on theoretical models to try and figure out, you know, if, if we put in all these parameters and run our convection models, what do the models predict for the amount of, we call it dynamic topography, but basically elevation that's caused by convection cells within the mantle rather than plates smashing together. Like generally, like the Himalayas is a great example. The Himalayas is formed by India smashing into Asia. So mm -hmm. the fact that those two smash together, you'd imagine like two pieces of Play-Doh smashing together. They get really, really thick, and then they just float really high in the in the asthenosphere, in the mantle. So that's that's generally how mountains are made. And pretty much any mountain range you're going to look at is made that way. But there are all these little places, like Southern Africa is another good one, where there's topography or these topographic histories that are not super easy to explain using plate tectonics because plate tectonics isn't really active there, like in the middle mm -hmm. of North America. <laughs> like you're, you're very far away from the plate boundary. And so 
how how do you actually create these basins where you're not smashing things together or pulling them apart it's just kind of sitting there and so that's in a it's a more subtle effect it is a much basically. more subtle effect it's a so subtle even that people dispute that it even happens at all or if it does oh it gosh. has like no effect yeah so i've actually just been reading this paper by this one guy in our department who's like a legend and the thesis or the the hypothesis in the paper is just that dynamic topography like what i'm trying to figure out and like show that it happened in north america basically doesn't do shit it just like is not <laughs> it's not something that you can really and he's granted he's looking at it in the present day but right. you know it's that would be awesome though you can cite him and be like yeah and in this thesis i proved that it's wrong because right. i did all this cool research in that north would america be awesome Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> I mean, I think it's cool that you get to travel at all during the summer and like dig out chunks yeah, of rock, but you know. It's sweet. And it was, it was fun driving around. I drove like 4,000 miles, like all through Canada and all this stuff, just like feeling literally loading the car down with rocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my dad like collects fluorescent minerals. I don't know if you knew this, but he used, to, I don't know if he does anymore. He used to be a huge rock count and collect a lot of fluorescent minerals. And there's some famous mine in like Pennsylvania, I want to say, that they open up once a year. The The mine is closed, but they have all the tailings, uh -huh. like a big pile yeah, of all the dirt they pulled out. And once a year, they let people dig through it. My dad brought back a 70-pound suitcase, like, just filled with rocks. Oh, and they're yeah. like, sir, you need to check this. Like, they were afraid he would do something on the plane. <laughs> just rocks, I he's swear. Like, yeah, he's like, they're just rocks. Like, they just glow really cool. Let me show you. And I'm like, dad, this is not. No. <laughs> yeah, people, people go crazy for rocks. My grandma was a rock hound. She oh, yeah? loved rocks. She would collect a bunch of rocks. A lot of like petrified wood. Like in Texas, we got a ton of petrified wood. You probably know mm -hmm. this. So and like gypsum flat gypsum mm -hmm. blooms or what is it called? What are they called? When they, it looks like a flower, it's like these like cool like parallelogram crystals, but they look like they're like flowers the way that they form. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know like the specific name for it. Yeah, those are the cool. My dad used to bring those home, and I just thought it was the coolest thing as a kid but yeah i think geology is fascinating and i can't you are definitely in an area that i don't think i could have explained before you explained it i would have been like yeah like plate tectonics but not i don't know <laughs> yeah it's a good test for me too because like i generally just talk to other geologists and so you kind of never know how how far back because we don't really learn geology in school i mean i think there's like geology in like eighth grade or something in, in Texas, at least we had that. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, but you know, most people just don't give a shit about it and they like forget about it completely. Yeah. And it's not in any, it's not usually a college required course. And so it's just like gone. Well, this has been awesome talking to you. Um, do you have a Twitter or a official lab website or anything where people can find you if they're interested in your work more? So you can check out the lab's website, which is called uh, CU Trail, uh, T-R-A-I-L. Um, Beggy Flowers is my advisor. It's her lab. So that would be the place to go for that. I don't really have a Twitter or a personal website at the moment. So I can't really, I don't have any publications, so I don't know what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Working on it though, but no, nothing published yet. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, That's okay. our, our website will have like other things that people have published and kind of what we try to do. So if you really are interested in thermochronology, you should check it out. It's pretty cool. That is, yeah, perfect. And we'll, you know, never know. You can come back in a year and then you'll have a bunch of publications on your own website and everything. Probably have a publication. Um, <laughs> God, science is so slow. <laughs> um, well, thanks for listening. This has been sure. PH Drinking. Yeah. You can find the, twi- we have a Twitter account, which is at PH Drinking. Um, and I also have an email account set up, which is phdrinking at gmail.com. So if you have any other suggestions for graduate students or anyone who would like to uh, participate, yeah, give me a holler that way. And it's been great having you. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks, Sadie.